Chapter 19 of Cordelia the Magnificent. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott. Chapter 19 Golden Days. Cordelia was now playing the drama of her life upon a stage in a setting, however entrancing it may seem to those who gaze enviously upon it from the cheaper seats where unusual and dramatic action is not considered good social dramaturgy. The incidents of life must be interesting. In fact, making them interesting is the chief motive and concern of such life. But the incidents must run smoothly, in their appointed order, and according to the scenario of one's engagement book. Furthermore, Cordelia was a lady, and a lady may dream and even scheme, but if she would remain impeccably a lady— she must limit herself by the code of her class, and must wait with seemingly mild interest and even smiling detachment for her plans to mature into events. She cannot, with compelling and colorful action, hasten her desires into swift and dramatic conclusions, as may a spirited woman who has a lowlier position to live up to and to risk. Here is the most tedious, trying penalty that accompanies the blessing of being a lady. One must forever be a lady." Cordelia's career, which she never ceased to regard as a thing of growing splendor, had now apparently reached one of those pleasant, eventless stretches where a lady can only wait. The days and weeks which now flowed by were, of course, exciting enough in their details, in their hopes, in their suspense. But whatever might be happening outside the boundaries of her knowledge, or whatever forces might be gathering, nothing of importance happened upon the surface of Cordelia's life, and nothing of importance consciously happened within her— and she ventured no further undertaking. Every hour was interesting and full. She was seeing Jerry Plimpton almost every day, and she sensed that they were nearing a rapprochement. She saw Mr. Franklin every few days. Gladys was frequently over to Jackie's place, and Cordelia drove frequently across to Rolling Meadows, for Gladys was insistently eager to maintain terms of friendship. There were frequent sessions with the enthusiastic Kyle Brandon, who was always having new ideas for her part in the pageant, and when not thus engaged, there were bridge parties and dances at this country house and that, and drives home through the beautiful but too prompt dawn. Just days of delightful routine, moving triumphantly toward an appointed culmination. But though Cordelia's life was now barren of large, dramatic events, that is, dramatic events of which she was conscious, she was fully conscious that life for her had never been richer, more full of promise, than during these splendid days— that she herself had never been more able to meet life, manage life, and, yes, adorn life. Never before had she been happier, never so free from the care of money, never had she had brighter dreams, and never had her dreams been so certain of fulfillment. To her friends, to the host who admired her from a distance, she was Cordelia at her best, a super Cordelia. In a more resplendent way than ever before, she was that which all her life had trained her to be, and in a thoroughly human way, a way that warmed her with kindliness toward all and gave new strength and dignity to her splendid self-confidence, she was aware that she radiated ability and charm and graciousness and glory. Never before, to any such degree as during these expansive and expanding weeks, did that old half-humorous title of Cordelia the Magnificent seem so thoroughly deserved, so perfectly fitting, so much an inspiration on the part of the proud father who had bestowed it. Cordelia the Magnificent. She was nothing less. Occasionally her soaring spirits fluttered to earth, and she thought of Mitchell, 
In fact, her mind, particularly when she wasn't watching it, flashed down to him several times a day. Sometimes her thoughts were dominated by resentment of the man's cool insolence, again by curiosity. He had said that there was no mystery about him, that when she learned the full truth she would be surprised only by its simplicity, its utter obviousness. Perhaps he had not been telling the truth when he had said this. Certainly he was no ordinary person. Who was he, really? What sort was the real Mitchell at bottom? Not once during her several brief visits to Rolling Meadows did Mitchell again break through his butler demeanor. She was, of course, curious, even felt keen suspense, over how Mr. Franklin was going to put an end to Mitchell's hold upon Gladys, his admitted blackmail of her. This achievement represented her cleverness, her effort. On one of Mr. Franklin's early visits to Jackie's place, this was at the end of the afternoon following his bargain with Gladys, Cordelia drew him aside and questioned him upon this business of Mitchell. "'As I once before told you, the clearing of this matter will require time,' he said. "'But I am making progress. Excellent progress, in fact, for I am no longer merely working for Miss Norworth indirectly as the attorney for her trustees. Miss Norworth has placed all her personal affairs in my hands as her attorney.' "'Splendid! Is this arrangement a secret?' "'By no means. I'm sure Miss Norworth will confirm it if you care to ask her.' Here was a real accomplishment which Cordelia felt was due to her efforts. And when, half an hour after his departure, Franklin's letter of praise with the enclosed check for $2,500 was opened, she had slept till after lunch and it was seven o'clock when she turned to her morning mail, she felt that she really deserved the tribute he paid her, and she glowingly agreed with him that her service was so unique and valuable that she had fully earned this further bonus. The following day Cordelia was over at Rolling Meadows, primarily for an hour with Francois, and she managed a few moments apart with Gladys, during which she congratulated her upon entrusting her affairs to so able a man as Mr. Franklin. "'That must mean, Gladys,' she ended, "'that there'll soon be an end to Mitchell's bleeding you.' Gladys had been glaring since Cordelia's first word upon the subject. She now exploded. "'It means that I am being bled ten times worse than ever!' "'Worse than ever? How?' Cordelia's appearance of astonished innocence was altogether too much for Gladys. "'How? You know how, damn you! You damned hypocrite! You crook! That's just what you are, a damned crook!' Cordelia stiffened. A dangerous gleam flashed from her eyes. "'Gladys, you'll please explain exactly what you mean.' But Gladys did not explain. Courage and anger left her with panic abruptness. She remembered how much further Cordelia might go if provoked. And she recalled Mr. Franklin's strict injunction to say nothing about paying out hush money through him. So once more she cringed, spoke of her uncontrollable nerves, vowed she meant no reflection against Cordelia. Cordelia went away puzzled, also incensed against Mitchell. At the very least, Mitchell should have been content with the tribute he was already exacting. Instead, Gladys had said he was demanding and receiving more. Yes, the man was a scoundrel. His behavior answered all doubt of that, and what a ruthless, unmitigated scoundrel the man was. Notwithstanding this unexpected failure in the matter of Mitchell, or rather the delay in her success, Cordelia did not return Mr. Franklin's $2,500 check sent in recognition of services extraordinary. She did not return it for the compelling reason that she no longer had it. She had very promptly either spent it or pledged herself to its expenditure. Of course, she had not paid anything on her new accounts at the shops, 
Those bills were less than a month old, and of course could not be considered as really owed for six months or so. But more than any other of her possessions, that smart, foreign-built roadster was the true index of her place in the world, and that roadster had been getting noticeably shabby. Scratched paint, a bent fender, nauseated and regurgitant growlings which excited the fear that the sickly car might some day spew out all its intimate organs immodestly upon the public highway. Of course, there was not enough money for a new car, not for a smart car, that is. So that morning she had driven her dependable pet into a New York service station and had ordered a thorough overhauling and a special paint job, the very best. The estimate had been fifteen hundred dollars, and as sophisticated automobile hospitals have the disobliging practice of requiring cash payments upon the delivery of a car, this meant that fifteen hundred dollars were, as it were, held in escrow. And then her mother, always hard up, had written despairingly of irritating creditors, and Cordelia, in the full current of a spending mood, had endangered her mother's weak heart by sending her a thousand-dollar check. Thus, once again, Cordelia's balance had succumbed to habit and returned to its homelike environment, which was bounded on the top by one hundred dollars. It was just a bit annoying, even embarrassing, that she had spent this money, and had to forego the graceful gesture of returning it. But then, well, Mr. Franklin would soon have Mitchell thoroughly checked. And besides, Mr. Franklin must have known of this delay when he had written her the letter of praise and sent the check. It was going to work out all right. It seemed as if this Mitchell was the thread upon which were strung all the odds and ends of unroutine events of this delightful routine period. She had been at Jackie's a month or six weeks, when Murray Thorndyke amazed his wife and the servants by coming home to dinner. This phenomenon had a very simple explanation which Murray was not called on to deliver. The dancing lady was just then preparing to introduce a new number in the summer show, and what with the time and temper required for her rehearsals, well, Murray decided to take a little vacation and devote himself to domesticity. His plump, good-humored, liquor-illuminated, yet essentially out-of-doors face had the eager light of one who bears surprising news. "'Guess whom I saw lunching in the Grantham Grill, all those grand dukes of waiters kissing his feet, and him taking it as easy as if he'd never done anything else with his feet except have them kissed by grand dukes. Give you each ten guesses and lay you ten to one you don't come within ten thousand miles.' They had their guesses, then gave up. "'That beggar that's been Gladys Norworth's butler. "'Mitchell's his name, and I tell you he looked just about as top-hole as they come, "'and acted as if he'd always had butlers, not been one. "'Now wouldn't that knock you dead?' "'Cordelia had expected Mitchell's reincarnation in human garb and with a different status. "'Nonetheless, she was just a bit startled by the event now that it had come to pass. "'She counted it fortunate, though, that she was thus learning of his transition at second hand.' saving her from possible embarrassment should she unprepared have chanced upon the altered man. Murray was going rapidly on. He was lunching with old Bill Graham, with old Bill of all men. Remember, Jackie, Bill was my best man. I stopped and was talking to Bill before I even noticed the Mitchell person. Hadn't really seen him when Bill started to introduce us. Mitchell took the introduction just as if he'd never seen me before, just as easy as that. As for me, I almost passed out, almost came apart, and that handsome beggar, cool as a cocktail, has fed me my soup God knows how many times, and him as cool as cool— It was Jackie who interrupted his incoherence with questions. Cordelia did not need to ask them. She thought she already knew the answers. What was his idea in acting as a butler? 
I didn't have the nerve to ask him. I didn't have the nerve even to suggest that I'd ever seen him as a butler, not to that cool bird, though damned if I didn't feel all the while that he was grinning at me inside himself. What's he doing now that he stopped being a butler? demanded Jackie. Open some kind of an office, don't remember just what sort. Believe he represents some Western interests. I think he did say something about automobiles. On a very modest scale, he said. I gathered that he'd just recently come into a bit of money. He had indeed come into a bit of money, Cordelia grimly remarked to herself, and she knew just how he'd come into it. Afterwards I saw old Bill Graham alone, Murray babbled on. Seems old Bill had known Mitchell a bit over in France during the big scrap. Bill hadn't known Mitchell well, for Mitchell was with the Canadians. Says Mitchell had a buddy he was nuts about. The buddy was wiped out in 1916, after which Mitchell started to lick the Germans all by his lonesome. According to Bill, this Mitchell was a humdinger. Devil of a fine chap. Cool, reckless, liked by everyone. Didn't happen to make one of those spectacular military reputations, though, which are largely the result of accident, luck, and having a war correspondent look your way at just the right minute. But Bill said he certainly is one corker. Gee, wouldn't I like to have the inside story of that bird. Wherever Cordelia went during the next few days, the ex-butler of Gladys came excitedly into the conversation. Mitchell was by way of being a mild sensation. No one seemed to have news of him that was superior to Murray Thorndyke's vague incoherencies, and Cordelia did not choose to enlarge the fund of common knowledge by revealing her experiences, store of facts, suspicions, and conjectures. The talk about him found expression chiefly in the form of interjections and questions. An obvious gentleman who had chosen to assume the role of butler. How interesting, how extraordinary, and why had he done it? He must have had some big mysterious reason for working as a butler. Guesses at his reason flew back and forth across dinner tables. A list of the romantic guesses would very closely have matched the summary of possibilities the smiling, tantalizing Mitchell had made for Cordelia during their first intimate talk in the little burnt clearing among the scrub pines. Gladys was present at one of these dinners, and she was assailed for answers to these guesses. She professed ignorance equal to that of her questioners. "'Didn't you ever once suspect while he was with you that he might be something besides a butler?' was demanded of her. "'Not once,' she replied. "'And when he left me and turned out to be a gentleman, I was just as surprised as any of you.' "'Really? Just think of having had a man like that work for you as a servant. Now that you know what he is, how will you treat him if you ever happen to see him?' "'I shall forget that he was ever my butler and treat him just as I would any other gentleman.' "'Really? Then they'd have to treat him that way too,' they supposed.' Cordelia felt a grudging admiration for Gladys for the naturalness with which she acted this little scene. Except for Cordelia, not a soul at that dinner had a guess as to Gladys's real emotions and motives. End of chapter 19 Read by Lorraine R. Allen